There are times on the podcast when we have the absolute pleasure of sitting and learning from our guests. And I feel like this was one of those times. Today, we're chatting with Mia Birdsong, who can best be described as a bright light, but also one of those people who shows you how to believe in true change and what role you can play in doing that within your own spheres. Here's a small glimpse of who she is. Mia is a pathfinder, community curator, and storyteller who steadily engages the leadership and wisdom of people experiencing injustice to chart new visions of American life. She has a gift for making visible and leveraging the brilliance of everyday people so that our collective gifts reach larger spheres of influence, cultural and political change, and create well-being for everyone. Mia's approach marks the departure from traditional institutionalized change work, which seeks solutions from select, quote, experts, who are people often removed from the problems they're charged to solve. Woohoo! I'm excited. So on this episode, listen on to hear us talk about mm, topics like white supremacy, capitalism, trust circles, the role of community. I mean, that's pretty much everything and so much more. And you will. I mean, I have quoted bits of knowledge from this ever since we've recorded it. We cannot wait to hear what part most resonates with you. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Well, we are really excited to have you on the show. And would you, for the sake of our audience, please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Mia Birdsong. I am an activist and a writer and a whole bunch of other things. I love it. I mean... Included in the whole bunch of other things is a TED speaker. You had a TED talk that has 1.8 million views as of the last time we checked. Yes. I think actually, if you look at their at their YouTube channel, this is what my publishers do. <laughs> it's more than 2 million. So <laughs> that's <yeah>. amazing. <laughs> that's powerful. Yeah, it was, you know, I mean, that was five years ago now. And I had no idea what to expect. But it was it's great that, you know, most of my work, my public work is some form of storytelling where I'm telling stories that I get from people who we don't often hear from. So I was just really I'm so pleased that so many people got to hear the stories that I told in that talk. We just had the opportunity to interview Alvin Irby of Barbershop Books. And one of the things that he said really reminded us of the point you made in your TED talk, which was can we not assume we know better about how to help poor people? Can we just ask the people who need help what they need help with? Because he was saying, when it comes to getting kids excited about reading, why don't you ask the children what they want to read? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that with so many of the like public issues that people wring their hands about and try to figure out solutions to, so often we are not actually asking the people who experience whatever it is to tell us what it is that they want, whether, I mean, for everything. And particularly when it comes to economic injustice, because we definitely, you know, as a culture, we assume that people are poor because of some kind of personal failing, as opposed to people are poor because we have a system that promotes wealth hoarding, you know, and that's a systemic issue. It's not a personal failing. Wealth hoarding. That is yes. such an mm -hmm. interesting phrase. <laughs> I didn't I, think of it that way. Yeah, I feel like poverty is a symptom of something. It is not an actual problem. The problem is wealth hoarders. And I think, you know, I'm like, let's design lots of programs and interventions for people who, you know, have more money than they need. 
Like, that's a problem. And I'm like, and there's something wrong with you if you do that. If you live in the world and you see, which you cannot avoid, how many people are through their the resources that they need and you hoard resources, like you need an intervention to stop being an asshole, basically. <laughs> Am I allowed to swear? I was going to say, we were so proud of ourselves. We swear regularly. <laughs> and then we were told that everyone's listening to these episodes now with their kids with their around. Kids. So we need to clean it up. But I'm very happy All to right, go. I will try. No, 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 no. Yeah. Now, now that you've opened up that, ripped <laughs> off that band-aid, we'll just mark this good. episode as explicit and we are good to go. Great. Yeah. Good. My daughter is often like, Mom, you swear too much. <laughs> so I'm oh, like, no. fuck you. <laughs> I normally say that in my head. Um, yes, I say I it out it. loud. I'm completely inappropriate with my kids. I'm married to a Canadian, and there, most of the time, swear words are just the average word. And so the kids have heard so much in the way of, <laughs> that they've delivered some choice words at funny times as well. Oh, yes. But yeah. going back to what you were saying about this idea of wealth hoarding and how we need to share it, I mean, that in and of itself, a whole conversation we could have. But because I've heard people be like, we should put a billion, like a cap. If you make a billion dollars, yes. why do you need more you than that? I did the math. Like you can't spend a billion dollars in your lifetime. It is, it's just like such gratuitous excess. And it's a form of theft because, you know, the people who are accumulating money are not actually producing anything. It's the workers and those people, right? The people who work at Amazon and Walmart and whatever, you know, are making like shitty wages and they can barely get by. We collectively, society is, you know, lots of those folks end up having to, you know, use food stamps or live in Section 8 housing. So we actually are paying for them. And the people who are stealing their wealth, right, are just are, you know, buying islands. And I don't know what they're doing, actually. I don't know what you do when you have billions of dollars. But that's so interesting because I've heard arguments from people saying, no, we can't tax the rich because they create opportunities for everybody we'll else. They give anything. I mean, we've all just, you know, this is part of what's kind of woven into the history of America and the American dream narrative is this idea that people who have wealth earn it that they are doing something to earn it. And that is a lie. And therefore that people who don't have it must be, you know, lazy and not working hard enough. And that's just not true. That's just like, I mean, factually, just that's not my opinion. That's just not accurate. But we've all kind of bought into this story. And I think largely because, you know, I mean, the people who are in positions of power perpetuate it. But, you know, those of us, you know, like the three of us, I would imagine, we also, you know, when we achieve success, we want to believe that we have earned it, right? We want to believe that, like, we have gotten there because we worked hard and we were smart and made good choices. So an interrogation of that system calls into question our success and our achievement. And that's a really uncomfortable thing for us to have to contend with. And it's not to say that, like, you know, I know I worked hard, like, I've totally worked hard, but that doesn't mean other people haven't. Right. That doesn't mean that. And fundamentally, I would say that aside from the fact that like working hard is like, you know, is kind of the low bar, that, that is what most people are doing. I don't actually think that that's the question we should be asking or like, are people working hard? The question that I want us to ask is, who do we want to be as a country, as a society? Do we want to be a place where people have to 
demonstrate that they are worthy of basic human rights like food and shelter and education and healthcare? Or do we want to be a place that recognizes everybody's fundamental humanity, which means that you don't have to earn access to the things that you need to survive? It means even if you fit like, even if you are like 53 and spend your day smoking pot and playing video games in your mother's basement, like you still deserve to have the things that you need to live. So the question of hard work, I feel like, yes, one, it's a lie that that people who don't have access to resources aren't working hard, but that's not even the point. The point is that like we are like there's tremendous abundance in the world, but definitely in the United States. And there isn't a choice that we should have to make between like, do people get fed or not? Do people get access to education? Do people have during a global pandemic, do people have access to health care? It'll get so off my true. little soapbox now. No, I love <laughs> no. it. I was literally asking my husband, I should ask you this too, me, Sasha. My husband is really into history. But is there ever a case that we can point to where a country has turned itself around? Because we are not fundamentally the country you just described. That would be my ideal, but we're not. And has there ever been a case where countries have been able to shift without there being this like, massive uprising where all leadership gets wiped out and everything changes, you know, like, when, I mean, when I is- don't, I don't imagine that it's happened without massive uprising, but I'm good with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't think there's ever been a case where the people who are in positions of power, like, were suddenly like, Oh, we should stop being total fucking assholes <laughs> and make actually make sure that our fellow human beings are not treated like garbage and in fact have everything they need. I don't think that that has ever happened. You know, I think that, <laughs> that it's going to take a revolution. Take, yeah. You know, and there are lots of things that make me sad about that. Right. Like, especially if it's like violent overthrow of government, like I don't like violence. I don't like the idea that people will die. But I also think that, you know, waiting for kind of a consciousness raising to happen, like that's not how it's going to work. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot too recently. And I agree. I think the problem is you have an inherent conflict with the people who are in power, right? And everyone else, because the systems that work to keep them in power are the systems that are basically oppressing everyone else. So I think, or not everyone else, obviously, some people are still benefiting from those systems. But I think you have to dismantle all the systems in a real way. And that is fairly impossible to do without that sort of revolutionary aspect. Yeah, you know, and I feel like I don't tend to think in binaries like that. It's like we stay this way or like there's violent overthrow of the government and the wealth hoarders. I think that, you know, <laughs> like we will continue to like there's also the gradual, very gradual process that we've been making. And I think there are ways to speed that up. You know, I also think that America is at a place where I'm like, I mean, the imbalance between the wealth hoarders and everybody else is like so deeply significant. And part of what has happened is that those of us who, you know, aren't like desperately poor, think that we're doing okay. When in fact, I mean, you know, I pay like many hundreds of dollars every month in order to have health care. And that's absurd. Like, that's it's ridiculous that that's something that so many of us are doing. So I think there's this way in which we have, like, you know, just been lulled into the sense that we are doing okay because we're not doing as crappy as other people. But, like, really, we're not. 
And I think, you know, what I'm hopeful is that more of us reckon, you know, there's some breaking point we reach where more of us are like, I can't keep doing this, you know, and I, you know, I think the possibility that this pandemic will get us there is pretty significant. You know, if I just think about the crushing weight of that our medical system is under right now, and what it's going to mean for people like, I mean, first of all, there's like, obviously, the like, hundreds of thousands of deaths that are possible. And then there's the, you know, even if you recover, right, like be having organ failure for the rest of your life, right? Like there's like the medical debt that's going to come out of this whole thing is just going to be outrageous and people are just not going to be able to deal with it. So there's going to have to be something that happens. And that feels to me like a potential breaking point. You know, I think about it, though, like my fear, and that's ultimately the thing that I want us to get rid of as a country, because we've been so good at sowing the seeds of fear in every Mm. area. But the same way that like a gunman going into an elementary school and killing kids, I thought that would be it. Like we could make change. Like to me, if COVID doesn't force us to look at this country and make some fundamental shifts, I really, really, really don't know what it's going to be. So I don't want to lose momentum right now. I want us to really see the humanity in each other and really be like, we're in this together and we've got to make it work like now. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yes. I totally agree with you. You know, I said to my kids the other day, because we were just thinking, you know, as we're kind of summer's wrapping up and we're approaching the school year I'm using rabbit (laughs) totally with quotes on around it you know I said to them I was like you know if there'd been so you know we live in California I was like if there'd been an earthquake there'd be this like this really traumatic like violent if it was a massive earthquake like thing that happened and then we'd be in recovery but instead we're in this place where it's like the earthquake is happening constantly and there's no recovery happening and like there's no answers to how we have actually navigate through this so you know i was saying to them i was like there's no way for us to have school happen in a way that like makes up for the loss and provides the same level of education that they would be getting if they were, you know, attending school in person. I'm like, that's just not a possibility. So we just have to, we're just constantly doing the best we can. And that feels inadequate, especially over a long period of time. So, you know, I think that, I hope that we don't become, that this moment doesn't become normalized to us, like the deep, (laughs) like the ways in which it just is not workable. I hope that we can be like, okay, like this is not like, let's do something different. And I think, yeah, and you're right. There's a tremendous amount of momentum right now. And I'm just, you know, I got my fingers crossed that we are, we're moving our way towards something better than what we've had in the past. I mean, that's interesting, right? We don't want to normalize it. And yet in my mind, I'm kind of like weak. I have to be okay with where we're at in order to make it through or I'd lose totally as a coping mechanism. right? And that's (laughs) the danger is like, how do we like not go bananas and like just, you know, crack under the pressure of everything because it's so relentless. But how do we also not become complacent in that place? You know, I think that that's true of how things have been previously. Like when we think about the Like, you know, if I step back and I think about like the kinds of like racism and sexism that I've experienced in my lifetime and there's a way in which I've had to normalize it so that I don't like, you know, I'm not a fucking puddle on the floor every time something horrific happens to me. Like we have to like as again, as coping mechanism, we have to normalize things. But I wanted to stay self-aware enough to be able to be like. Oh, like that, like that thing that happened, that was really, really traumatic and awful. And I'm coping with it by like not freaking out and kind of like 
doing whatever, but like also let me process it so that it doesn't become this thing that I'm just kind of like holding in my body and in my heart. And let me keep reminding myself that it's not okay, even if it is frequent or like, you know, expected. And I think that's hard to do, right? It's hard to just like continually be coping with something and to be continually reminding yourself that like you shouldn't have to. But I feel like that's part of what we have to do in order to maintain a sense of not even urgency, but just a sense of clarity that we want things to be different than how we are, even if we are surviving whatever it is that we're experiencing. That's great. That really resonated with me because it's something I talk to my husband about a lot, I think, because he was talking about that. And we're also in California, but we are, you know, he was talking about sort of the normalization of not the normalizing racism in his life, but the how, you know, to deal with it in a way that does not destroy you every single time because you know it's coming. And he, you know, he has this story of when he was first called the N-word and what his dad said to him then. And it was basically like when he was crying, like you can cry, but you also need to be strong because this Mm. is, you need to balance out those two how you feel on the inside, how you are on the outside, and how that is going to interact and sort of play off each other and that strength and the pain for your lifetime, basically. And so, which is something I can't imagine in the same way. So it's... Yeah, I feel like I've been really trying to figure out how to make sure, you know, because it's not like I experience, like, you know, I'm not in environments where random people are calling me the n-word but i definitely you know there are definitely like microaggressions on a regular basis and i think that one of the things that you know you get yeah trained around as a person of color is that you can't that in some way like you're letting you know the racists win if you feel it and then also that you have to function so i've really been trying to figure out for myself how do i function, right? But how do I also make sure that I'm actually acknowledging the fact that those things are painful and that I need to process them so that I don't internalize them, both internalize whatever the messages are that I'll, because they align with, you know, kind of larger narratives that I've gotten my whole life, but also internalize them in that, you know, if we don't process pain and trauma, then like they make us sick. And I think that more important than like, you know, not letting the racist see me cry is me like not dying, right? Like not accumulating kind of the toxicity of racism over a lifetime in a way that actually makes me physically ill and like, you know, shortens my life expectancy. So I'm trying to look at that like my own kind of healing and like claiming joy and pleasure as ways of me figuring out like what does liberation look like for me now as an individual or as like a collective of you know people who I feel like I do this work with and claiming that as my rebellion as opposed to being stoic in the face of white supremacy and patriarchy. You know, from the positive psych standpoint, which has been a field that fascinates me, we learned that there's three ways to process information, like when you're trying to analyze something that's not sitting right. And it's either you can either think about something like the rumination, you can Mm -hmm. talk about it or you can write about it. And when you're processing something negative, talking about it and writing about it are some of the best ways to get things out. And is it a surprise? Like, do you use some of your work? You're a speaker. You have this incredible new book, which I want to talk about too. Mm -hmm. Like how much of this work also helps you process the stuff? Definitely. 
I mean, I'm a, definitely a talker before I'm a writer. Like writing is not my medium at all. Like when people would say, how's the writing going? I was like, I would say I'm not writing a book. I'm making a book because probably 80% of it is actually talking to other people about it. And then I would work out all of my thinking and then I'd be able to write stuff. But I think, you know, the big piece that I'm leaning into that I think is missing from those three options is the way that we process things in our body. There is so much stuff that I'm discovering from my therapist and from friends of mine who are um, somatics practitioners. There's so much healing and processing that we can do through our bodies that like bypasses our intellect and really just like, because we hold so much stuff in our bodies and we can actually work through a bunch of things by working with our bodies. So that's the thing I feel like I'm actually trying to lean into right now because you know, I feel like I've gotten the kind of like intellectual processing down, but there's still stuff that I know I'm holding that are very, very, you know, a lot of our really old stuff exists in our bodies. I mean, and this is like, you know, the mind-body connection is like well established. (laughs) And we can, you know, like the fact that like when we feel stress, like our shoulders or our back starts hurting, like that's (laughs) like, that's the stuff that you need to get out physically. And it's not about having a conversation about the stress. It is actually about like, I mean, it's about like, you know, finding time for rest, but then it's really about working through, I'm finding that it's about working through stuff in my body. I mean, Sasha, energy work and all the Reiki stuff that I do. And yes, like I feel you, I completely feel you. I'm a big, I feel like that fits in with my worldview of like energy and that sort of stuff too. Yes. I, can we talk about the book? Yes. (laughs) How we show up. I mean, I love that title. That was all my editor. (laughs) (laughs) What does showing up mean for you? Oh, so many things. You know, the thing I've been thinking about now, right, since sheltering in place started here in the Bay Area in March, is how we are responsible for each other and what it means to not just be generous in my giving, but to be generous in my receiving. And I think, you know, we're are clear about the ways in which we understand generosity is like offering things and giving things or doing things for other people. But part of what I've been trying to be better about practicing is being generous and receiving. So saying, you know, kind of pushing back against the part of me that feels like discomfort or shame when people offer something and, you know, not wanting to be a burden or, you know, my attachment to my self-sufficiency and saying yes more often when people are offering me things, and especially when they're offering things that would bring me ease, right? It's not about them offering like, you know, something because I'm desperate and have to have whatever it is, or I'm going to die. But like that people are offering me things when they see that I'm struggling a little bit, and recognize that it would bring me ease, or they're just offering things because they know that everybody's struggling. And I'm one of those people. And the generosity part comes in recognizing that people who care about me want me to be doing well. So when I say yes, I'm honoring the fact that they care about me. And when we say yes to when people offer us things, there's such a sense of, and we know this because we experience it when we offer things that are accepted. Like we feel restored by that. We feel like our love is being acknowledged. We feel like we are part of something that is bigger than ourselves. And I think that there is this kind of, you know, there's this like circle of giving and receiving that we are all part of. And we have a responsibility both to 
kind of put into that circle, but also to receive from it so that it keeps going. So that's one of the things I think that comes to mind. And, you know, I was this very wise woman, Norma Wong, who I know, I was in this workshop with her and we were, many of us were struggling with this idea of responsibility because we kind of associate responsibility with like obligation or burden. And she was like, I'm going to write it down for you. She put it in the chat and she wrote response and then a hyphen and ability. And she's like, responsibility is about your ability to respond. And what she was saying is that like part of how we show up for other folks is about expanding our ability to be responsive to what needs us to show up. It's not about obligation and burden. It really is that like as our own ability to see what is needed in the world and to feel our own sense of purpose in that, like as that becomes revealed to us, then we can kind of step into a place of responding to things. And that just like, I mean, I just blew my mind to think of it that way as opposed, and I'm like, of course it's two words. Like so many other words are made up of other words. And reframing it that way for myself has moved away from the kind of like sense of obligation or that like I have to do something because it's the right thing to do. And I think that when I think about showing up right in the context, I was just talking about this like circle of giving and receiving and the generosity in there. It is also about, you know, it's not about obligation and burden. It really is about tapping into a like circuit of energy that if it's running well, right, if my networks of people are all giving and receiving, and my people's networks of people are all giving and receiving, then we're actually creating ease for everybody in that network. And, you know, it's like that, uh, I'm trying to think of an analogy, I feel like there's a like trust game that you can do as a group where you kind of all stand in a circle, and then you sit down on each other's laps. <laughs> and like, it only works if everybody does it, like the timing is right. It feels like that, right? Like we are all holding and being held by each other. And, you know, I think that that is always true of people, whether we like to admit it. But I think right now, like the so much of the facade of our ability to be independent has been washed away by this pandemic. And it's revealing the fact that we're all just like sitting in a circle on each other's laps. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> So my question on that then, because I think that's it's a great imagery and it feels like really nurturing and you're connected mm, and you're not alone yep. in the world. So I love that idea. And I love that you're in a position where your biggest struggle was like, let me accept people's generosity. Mm. Like that's a great position to be in. How on the flip side of that, with this time that we're in right now and this you mentioned self-sufficiency and this ideal that we say mm -hmm. we have as the American dream. How do you see the idea of asking for help? changing. Yes, we are allergic to asking for help. <laughs> we are so uncomfortable with it. And I think, you know, part of why I've in thinking about this, I've been emphasizing offering and offering like specific help is because we are so we have such a hard time asking. If particularly if you're experiencing hardship, and somebody says, like, let me know if you need anything. Right. Like, you don't know what the fuck you need. Like, you have to think about what it is that might be useful. And then you have to, like, do the calculus. Right. Of like, is this person somebody who can provide this thing? And then you have to make the ask, which is just like so challenging for us. So I have noticed and this is true in the research I did for my book. And I feel like this is true for me right now that when we lean into what we know about the people in our lives and we offer something that we think can be helpful, then they can just say yes or no. Right. I think that it is another step that I think all of us need to get better at, which is asking for help. And it could just be like, 
you know, I have this text of it's me and two other women who I'm very close to that started this group text that started, you know, I think in March. And all of us in different moments have been struggling and have challenged ourselves to let the others know that we're struggling. And it hasn't even specifically been like, hey, I need something, but it's just like, saying to other like not keeping it to ourselves like really just saying to these other women i'm having a really hard time right now and this is what that looks like and oh my god like the you know i feel like we have allowed each other like i've allowed those women to know me more in being able to reveal the places in which i'm struggling and they've been doing the same with me and i feel like the connection between us has grown so much stronger because of that you know, and I think the giving and receiving kind of cycle of generosity thing also is really about us allowing ourselves to be known. And part of being known is like is being vulnerable, right? And sharing more of yourself with each other. And I think that that's important in general. And then I think, you know, the people who I've been doing that with for the last few months, the people who I've been saying yes to when they offer something and the people who I've been offering specific things to, like if some shit really goes down now, like I absolutely feel like I'm like, oh, we would actually ask each other, you know, for support if things happen. So I feel like we've been like that strengthening of connection that we've been doing between, you know, in these like different networks is building a safety net that wasn't there before. And I don't know, I think with the asking for help, like, you know, for me, it really started with recognizing that I was, I would be like, oh, like this thing I'm struggling with, like I could ask for help. <laughs> like, it's not something I have to like figure out myself and then seeing, you know, the support and nurturing and help that comes with that. For me, that felt like a really important place to start. I love that because I think it's so interesting that we were in these periods where physically we are so separate now, but it gives us that space when you really lean on people or allow people to lean on you to know them at much deeper levels than we may have yeah. ever gotten to, right? If right? we were able to physically like grab a coffee, let's say, and have some small talk about more superficial things than yeah. to really take that time and be vulnerable to them and let them be vulnerable to you. So I love that because I think, you know, Sarah and I talk a lot about on the podcast about our humanity and our collective humanity. And mm -hmm. that's what, how we can really strengthen those bonds because we see that in each other and recognize it in ourselves. And I want to go back to that circle image, you know, the trust mm -hmm. circle, because yes. I'm pretty sure I've done that on some team building um, yep, days. Totally. But, <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit also about the systems that prevent us from sitting like that in that circle, too. Right. And, and in particular, I'm thinking about like white supremacy, about yep. patriarchy, about capitalism, which we yep. touched on at the beginning. You know, and I know that you have said that these are threats to our humanity as a whole. And it seems, especially if we're thinking about that trust circle, right? We're not able to sit and trust each other because there are all sorts of factors that play into that. So I'd love to hear your take on on that. And, you know, in particular, My I'm take on, on white supremacy capitalism. Yes, and everything. Just a light yeah, conversation. Just no biggie. Stop them. Um, <laughs> yes. No, but I also in particular want to hear because, you know, it's something that is I would love to flesh out is how white supremacy is harming white people, because I think people understand or maybe not, but are coming to the realization that white supremacy is real, does exist and harms, right. you know, people of color. But 
then the yeah, next yeah, yeah. step no, totally. to look at right how it so harms think, white people. Yeah, because we do not. I think we don't understand white supremacy culture other than how it harms people of color. Right. Let's talk about patriarchy. Right. So we know that patriarchy is obviously super shitty for women and gender nonconforming people. But we actually have a well-established story about the ways in which patriarchy limits men. Right. So men are socialized. I mean, I think it was like the American Psychiatric Associate, some national bunch of therapists actually talked about like American masculinity as being harmful. Right. For boys and men. Right. And we understand that it is harmful for them because it limits, you know, men and boys ability to express themselves emotionally fully. It only allows certain kinds of emotion. It makes them targets if they, you know, cry or do things that are considered weak. Right. I'm doing lots of air quotes that people who are listening can't see. So we have this story about like we can understand why patriarchy as a system is harmful to men. So I think that we can apply the same thinking to white supremacy, right? And partly people aren't familiar with like what white supremacy culture is. And it is deeply, I mean, it's very hard to kind of like pull white supremacy culture apart from patriarchy and capitalism. But, you know, it's things like professionalism and urgency and it's rigidity, right? It is the idea that there are winners and losers and all of those like all the parts of white supremacy culture also really limit white people. So they're the ways in which white supremacy is harmful because like, you know, it creates barriers for people of color and therefore we're like missing out on all the awesomeness, like the additional awesomeness, right. That could exist in the world if we actually stopped, you know, creating barriers for people of color. And we all benefit from that. I think that it is also like soul deadening to have an identity that is predicated on the subjugation of other people. Like that's just not good. So it's those things, right? It is that like, if you have, you know, loved ones who are people of color and they are experiencing harm, then you like, you know, your heart, like, you know, when the people we love are in pain, like we are also in pain. So it's all of those things, but it really is. Those are the things about it that are dependent on relationships with people of color, either like actual relationships or just like, you know, proximal relationships because we exist in society. But outside of that, right, what I'm saying is that white supremacy is actually just inherently bad for white people. And I think the challenge, right, for white people, and this is when I talk about this work, I'm talking about hundreds of years of work, right? I'm talking about generations of work. I'm not talking about things that people will figure out in their lifetime. And I think that I want white people to have an orientation toward the work of dismantling white supremacy in the same way that I do, which is that I know that, you know, I mean, black people have been trying to work on this shit for 400 years, <laughs> right? Like, I'm not expecting that I'm going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out in my lifetime, like that I'm going to do something that's going to do that. I'm both, I recognize that I am doing this work alongside of millions of other people, like in my lifetime, but that also like, you know, a baton was passed forward to us and our job is to like do our part and to pass it forward to the next generation. And I think one of the things that white supremacy culture does is like, it's, you know, it's short-sighted and it's like, we got to figure this thing out now. And if it's a solution that takes too long, then it must not be a good solution. I'm like, no, 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 no. We've been, (laughs) this is many generations of work. So I think the challenge, right, for white people is to understand who they are without whiteness, 
And part of that is a recognition that blackness and whiteness are not opposites of each other, right? They're very different. I mean, they're obviously related, but like black identity in America is not just, you know, it's not about skin color. It's about culture. It's about heritage. It's about history. It's about a lot of things. And whiteness is not an equivalent pathway, right? It's not an equivalent identity. So I want white people to figure out like, who are they without whiteness? Who are they And I don't know anybody who is like, you know, I think that's a hard thing to even see. But I think that that is the challenge for white folks is to figure out who are they without whiteness, because whiteness only exists because of white supremacy. And if we want to dismantle white supremacy, then we have to like white people have to be something else. And that's about, you know, I think that one of the things that folks need to do work around is recognize that, you know, white people's ancestors sold, like made this bargain, right? Gave away all of these languages and foodways and rituals and practices and just like all of this culture and the history in that culture in exchange for the power that comes with whiteness. Like that's what for white people who came to, I'm talking about white people in America mostly because that's what I know. Their ancestors made this bargain and they have benefited from it, but they also have like, there's so much loss there. And I think that acknowledging that loss and actually mourning that loss and doing the healing that's necessary in yourself to like, you know, heal your ancestors' trauma and pain is part of what's necessary for white people to figure out who they are. Can you, one of the things you said, I still have been sort of going over in my mind. Can you help draw the link a little bit more obviously about how, you know, earlier in the call, we talked about how perfectionism is a sample of Sam, Mm -hmm. uh, symptom of white supremacy and like patriarchy. Can you talk about how those things are related? Like so people can understand perfectionism, like how is that? Yeah. And like, because I think if we don't understand that like white supremacy hurts white people, this is a symptom of white supremacy. So like, obviously, like, so I think about the things that connect me to my humanity, like my own humanity and that connect me to other people and the ways in which, and I'm just, you know, I think again, it's pulling white supremacy away from capitalism and patriarchy doesn't like that doesn't work. But I think about the ways in which those systems have put place value on things that create that dehumanize people or like interrupt our connection with each other. So perfectionism, right? Like people are not perfect, like whole humans. Like, I mean, even what is that, right? Like that is just a way of understanding a world that is narrowing. And again, it doesn't have, I mean, it probably linguistically, maybe there's an opposite, but it's not like, therefore you want to do the opposite. It's like, what does it mean to live in a world where I feel like my whole humanity and I feel the whole humanity of other people. And I recognize that I share this space and planet with like, that we have like other relations, right? That aren't human, right? Like what's perfectionism to a tree? Like, what is that, you know, like, what is a deadline for a tree? How does the, you know, mycelium network recognize winners and losers? So when I think about those kinds of values, and I try to apply them to what is what are the things that, again, connect me to my humanity, but also just connect me to like life, right? And the idea of our kind of collective vitality and our ability to recognize that we as human beings like our nature, 
right? Like we are a part of it. We're not a thing outside of it. Those are the things that where I'm like, okay, these kinds of values, winners and losers, perfectionism, scarcity, dichotomies in general, like those are all like tenets of white supremacy. And those are the things that keep me from myself and from other people and from, you know, all the, the living things. I totally love that. And I understand that so much I totally better now. I just because... figured that out because you asked the question <laughs> and I thought about it just now. So. But well, it's that you know, dehumanizing. Like, like, yeah. Yes, totally. Because I think there are these things that we learn, right? And then somebody is like, what does that mean? And you're like, oh, shit. Like, I know that it's true, but like, what is it actually? How do I articulate that? So thank you for asking the question <laughs> because it made me have to answer it and like, think about it more deeply. It makes it so clear. I mean, okay. So then we talk about, let's talk about the American dream because that is yes. also one of those, like, again, systems that we've Hopefully. made up. It's an arbitrary achievement in theory based thing. And yet when you talk about dehumanizing, which I love that approach about it, but like people have been excluded from that dream. There's single mothers, there's black people, there's queer people, like people who- Most people have been, are, it's not for them. <laughs> Right. And it's so right. It's such a like delightful, inspiring idea, right, that you can and that anyone in this country can just like with some grit and determination and like perseverance. And of course, you know, we're doing this all by ourselves with no help from anybody, we can just like, we can make it like we can be a millionaire, we can like, you know, have all the things. And it's so I mean, it's been marketed so well for so long, right. But I mean, the people who created it, right, were if I think about like the founding fathers, right, when they talked about, you know, who was created equal and life, liberty and pursuit of happiness, like they were talking about they were not talking about women, right. They were not talking about anybody who was not white. They were talking about land owning people, right? So if you didn't own land, like you were excluded. So like, that's a very small percentage of the population that they were thinking about all these things for. And obviously, like, that doesn't mean that, I mean, we have expanded that, right? Like, I absolutely am someone who has, by all kind of like external measures, achieved, again, I'm bunny ears, the American dream. But I also, and this is like why I wrote this book, right? Like there's a hollowness to it because one, I'm like, I didn't do that shit by myself. <laughs> like nobody does. And the more I found myself like in its, the like current of its achievement, the more disconnected I was from other people and the less comfortable I was with, you know, kind of not presenting the most kind of put together badass version of myself. And like, I'm not always put together. I'm totally badass. But like that badassery is not dependent on independence. It's not dependent on, you know, how much money's in my bank account. It's not dependent on the accumulation of stuff or the power that I wield. So I think that like one, that dream is not for everyone. And the people who we can point to as examples of people who are not landowning white men who managed to achieve it are exceptions. And no one, and we should not use exceptions as our like model for like what everybody should do. They're <laughs> exceptions, right? And like most of us are not exceptional. Like most people are average. That's just like by definition. And I actually think the thing that it is setting up, right, as like happiness and success is so hollow because again, because of the systems that you end up kind of leveraging in order to have your happiness and success, the systems that you end up benefiting from are 
dehumanizing. They cut you off from your humanity. They cut you off from other people. They cut you off from the planet. They're so extractive, right? And we know, like, if we look at, like, what's been done to, if we look at income inequality, if we look at climate change, like, if we look at toxic masculinity, if we look at rape culture, like, there, if we look at all of these things that kind of exist in our world right now, we can see that those systems have created, like, horrific, awful, potentially, like, humanity-ending circumstances. So they're not good, <laughs> Like, we are where we are right now because of white supremacy. I mean, I feel like that person in the White House is just, like, one example. But that him being in the White House, like, the cascade effect that that's created in this country over the last, what well, feels like, you know, 20 years, but it's just, <laughs> you know, about to be four. That, like, the reason we have the, like, such a awful crisis, on, you know, I mean, it's a pandemic for sure. Like, it's crappy no matter what. But the reason that we are suffering so greatly as a country because of it is because of white supremacy. Because white supremacy put him in the White House. And I think when we recognize that, like, if we pay attention to it, we can say, oh, like, this thing is actually, is like, it's not actually good for anybody. Because if we destroy the planet, you know, I mean, I'm not worried about, like, the rest of nature, the earth will recover. <laughs> I mean, it would probably breathe a sigh of relief if we got rid of all the people. So I'm just like, let's not be so self-hating and self-destructive as to think that what we've been doing is going to work out for us because it is not. Which makes me think, you know, this idea of the American dream right now, here we are in COVID-19. We were just talking about the fact that school is in air quotes now and what do we want to teach? We have opportunities right now. And part of what you talk about is this idea of an invitation and an opportunity that COVID-19 has brought in. Right now, I feel like, well, this is an incredible opportunity for us to really rethink, well, how do I make sure my kids are valuing mm. humanity and are not, you know, pursuing this notion of like, hard, hard, hard work, we'll get yeah. you this, we'll get you this. You know, it's not this linear thing, but can you talk yes. a little bit more know. about this? I feel like I've screwed this up with my kids for sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, part of our challenge is that we don't have many public models for doing it some other way. So I feel like, you know, I try to have conversations with my kids, but at the same time, you know, I'm like, get your homework done. There is this, I feel like I have not figured any of this out. I think the thing that works best with kids, which frankly, I think probably works best with with everybody is like modeling and honesty. Like I tell my kids that I'm struggling with trying to figure out how to help them be in the world in a way that is not about, you know, like pursuing the American dream. I try to talk to them about the ways in which I feel like I totally struggle with doing that. You know, I feel like the place that my values show up most poorly is in my parenting. And I'm not saying I'm a terrible parent, but I feel like it's the place that I feel like I'm most like punishment oriented. It's the place that I feel like I'm most like where my fear about like, you know, their well-being ends up like you know, diverting me back toward like pursuing the American dream for them. Like that stuff is really hard, right? Because we, you know, I've been socialized in America. So I feel like I'm undoing all that stuff for myself and they're being parented while I'm undoing it all. So I feel like, you know, they get the messiness and the contradiction of that. But I think mostly what I try to say is like, I mean, I say to my kids on a fairly regular basis, I know I'm fucking up. <laughs> I'm trying my best. Here are the ways in which... <laughs> I'm messing up. 
And when you're, you know, in your twenties, you'll go to therapy, but this is what you're going to say to your therapist. Like you can, you don't have to figure it out. There's no figuring it out. Like I can tell you what it is you're going to have to talk about. And I tell that, you know, and I tell them that like, I'm totally a hypocrite, like that, you know, I know that there are ways in which I talk about one thing and I behave a different way. And I invite them to like, help me hold myself accountable on those things and tell them I'm, you know, working on it. I feel like that's the best we can do, right? With kids. And I think in this moment, I'm trying to balance making them see and be aware of what's going on and recognizing that like all of us are being traumatized and kind of letting them, you know, dive into whatever world on their screens, like into Minecraft, or I think my daughter's rewatching Jane the Virgin now. So like letting them just be in like a world that is completely separate from the one that we actually exist in, because that's how they're coping right now. So, you know, we like have the hard conversations. I tell them, you know, they don't leave the house. (laughs) So it's not like they're seeing anything. So some of it is about like, you know, when there have been protests going on, there have been, you know, helicopters over our home and we will watch like, we'll like live watch things on TV so they can see what's going on and we talk about it. And other times I just leave them to like be in their own worlds and not be in the reality of this one because I know that they're experiencing a bunch of trauma, even though they don't you know, they're not like, again, it's not the earthquake, it's the like, long term trauma. I really, that honesty is awesome. Because that's also I feel the exact same way. Like there's a dichotomy in my parenting, and how my values and what I am trying to unpack and move towards. And then I just reactive in a lot of ways, my parenting, (laughs) just like, and I and also, that's great to hear about, you know, what you were you know, the division sometimes is necessary for your children from like what is happening now. And my children are, you know, six and seven. So they're a lot younger, or I don't know how old your children are actually. So, okay. (laughs) So, but they, you know, for my older son, it was, you know, he wrote a Black Lives Matter poster, and then he wrote My Life Matters underneath. And that was sort of the first time, you know, we had really talked about, on a very real level, what was happening. And, you know, he's still seven. So it was very hard to figure out where that happens. And then he'll go and play his Pokemon card game for, you know, two hours. And that's great. And I think that that's one of the trickiest parts is parenting, I think, period, and parenting in a pandemic and parenting with all of this associated trauma and just really difficult stuff that's going on. So where there are no answers. I mean, you know, both of my kids, I've been talking to them about race explicitly since they were two, at least. And, you know, part of it is about, I mean, it's about being age appropriate with them. And (laughs) that part feels easy. It is talking to them about like the ways that I mess up as a parent (laughs) and where they're clear that, you know, I also forget that they don't like, they don't know what I'm doing. Like, (laughs) unless I tell them, right. They don't learn by osmosis. I actually have to have conversations with them about the stuff that I'm thinking about or what's going on in the world or the things that I care about. And, you know, sometimes I don't want to talk about it anymore. (laughs) Um, Or I have to like, you know, make dinner or clean up dog puke or whatever. (laughs) And again, I'm not trying to be perfect in this. And I'm also like, it's not actually all on me, right? Or even on me and my husband, like we have, they have relationships with other adults in their lives who are also bringing like pieces of this. They have tons of, you know, chosen aunties who are 
you know, I mean, they have educators, they have aunties who are educators, they have aunties who are sex workers, they have like, this whole range of people in their life. So I'm also just like, counting on the fact that I'm not the only person who's parenting them. So, you know, all of the ways that I fuck up, like other people will help them repair from as well. And I think that that's one of the traps too of the American dream, and particularly of the like insular nuclear family is like, it's all on you. And don't two people can't raise children. Like that's not a thing. And the people who know that the best are like single mothers. You know, my single mother was did not try to do that by herself. I had a whole like I had we had chosen family. We had like really amazing community. I had my trio of chosen aunties and all those people helped raise me. So I feel like that's one of the things I feel like I learned from my mother. So I'm not trying to do this thing by myself just because I happen to have a husband. I think that's one of the most interesting things about American society or this American dream is like this vision of everyone has this standalone four wall house with a roof and they're all in their individual pods. And yet you look at most places around the world and they're in like communal apartment complexes. You have like Mm multi-generation homes like that. If you go back to the root of how we are meant to be as humans, it's to be connected. It is to be around people. And so It's almost this unlearning that everyone who believes that or has until this point been like, I've got to do it all alone to be able to like pull that toughness back out and Mm -hmm. lean into this idea of like, how do I build friendships? How do I consciously build cross-cultural friendships, Mm cross-race friendships, like really reevaluating and being comfortable starting? It's like a whole different way of living. Totally. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, part of... I mean, I think that we're always going to mostly build relationships with people who are near us or like us, right? Like, I don't think that all white people need to go out and get a black friend because they're not enough of us. And like, we don't need to be doing that work. But I think that if white people were in like more connected, intimate, vulnerable relationships with each other, they would not be perpetuating white supremacy in the same way that they are. So, and I think they would be easier for white folks to really recognize everyone's humanity. Like, I don't need to be friends with, you know, I'm trying to think about somebody who I don't know, like Aboriginal people in Australia in order to recognize um, folks' inherent humanity. So that if I like met somebody, you know, like I wouldn't need to like do a bunch of work to be like, oh, you're a real person, right? Like I don't need to treat you like enough. You know, I think that that just, and it's because I feel like when we tap into what is deeply human about us, we're not going to deny what is deeply human about other people. So I don't think though, I mean, white people's work is to make sure that people of color are safe, right? And to protect their well-being and to do that when they are with in groups where people of color exist or with other white people who are perpetuating white supremacy. But their personal work, right, is really to just like be whole humans and like see the humanity and the people around them and build the kinds of relationships that pull out of them, right, that extract, that excavate white supremacy and white supremacy ideas from who they are. I love (laughs) that. Like to me, I wrote down like at one hour, there is a quote that we are going to pull out because I really do think (laughs) that... That is, you know, Misasha and I always talk about we need to part of the process of this podcast and the vision behind it was like talking about people's humanity and making people understand there are different narratives. And 
I love that because I mean, as a life coach too, for me, like that is so much of it is undoing this external framework of what success is and like really tapping into what's important for each of us as individuals. And so I really appreciate that. I mean, you know, buy all the anti-racist books from the black bookstores and go to the protests and write your Congress people and stand up in the meetings when people are saying racist things and like do all of that for sure. But I feel like so much of, and, you know, cause like this is part of what there's the systems work that we have to do. And then there's the personal work. And if we don't do the personal work and kind of excavating systems of oppression from ourselves, then it doesn't matter how many, you know, reparations framed policies or like anti-racist policies we put in place because people are the ones who enact and reinforce and like decide how policies are going to function. So you can't write the racism out of a policy because the racism is in people, the people who are going to like, you know, make the policy function. So if we don't do our work, then like white supremacy will always find a way to bypass whatever, you know, we've created in terms of policy or practice. So I just think, you know, and like I said, I think that that's generational work. And what we have to do right now is we all have to do our part and we all have to do our best, like for real, do our best, not get too tired and like, be like, oh, I can't handle it anymore. No, like less. (laughs) And part of it's not doing it alone. Right. I think that's the other thing about capitalism and white supremacy culture is it's this idea that like, you're going to do this stuff on your own. I'm like, no, you need to like have your little group of white people who are helping you hold yourself accountable and who you're doing this work with so that you all are creating new culture together. You know, I was in this workshop. I can't remember. I've been in a lot of workshops recently because that's one of the things you do during a pandemic. You like (laughs) do a lot of workshops. But they were talking about how, you know, like the clan has a culture, right? They have ritual. They have uniform. They have a way in which they honor their dead. And, you know, all the anti-racist white people like don't have no culture. There's no like equivalent. And I think that and I was like, oh, my God. That feels like an important thing. And, oh, it was Resma Menachem who wrote My Grandmother's Hands. I was like, oh, yeah, like anti-racist white people need to have like to roll deep and have culture in the same way that the Klan does. (laughs) And I just thought that that was like a powerful thing to think about. Like, and again, I think this goes back to like, who are white people without whiteness? And you can't white folks can't figure that out on their own. It's not like you and as an individual figure that out. It's like, it's really about collectively white people doing that together. I'm like, what t-shirt manufacturers do we know who are going to create this next uniform? (laughs) I like that though. I mean, it's true. We need to have a voice and a presence that is just as symbolic saying, and I don't know if you need to have it, but I find that interesting, that juxtaposition. And people want to feel like they belong. So how do you spy those who belong in that culture? Mm. Well, I mean... I remember speaking with a friend who is Muslim and she was like, part of what I love about the headscarf is I can identify my fellow community members from like across the park. I mean, there's something to be said about that. I mean, that can end up being performative, right? Like that takes me back to the safety pin. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The safety pin. Because the Klan robe is not... You don't wear it out to the park. Well, but it's also, it's not, it grows out of the culture. You don't like figure out what the accoutrements of the thing are to create the culture, right? Like the culture is an embodied ideology, right? And then there are these things that become symbolic of that ideology. You don't, you know, there's not like the anti-racist white person hat that you just wear, right? Like it is about figuring out what the actual culture is. And that's where I'm like, white people need to figure out who they are, right? Like who they are without whiteness. And that out of that, like, 
new rituals emerge. I mean, you know, whole like systems of doing things will come out of that. And that part is really powerful to me. That part is I'm super curious about. I really liked what you said, though, about in terms of some of this work, it's really about seeing the humanity. Like a white person doesn't have to go find a token black friend and be like, yes, I'm having this conversation. The way you described it makes it feel attainable for a white person to basically see some of these structures and the pressure that people put on themselves as something that they can dismantle and as part of the process be doing anti-racist work and probably become a healthier human while you're yes. at it. And I think, you know, one of the the other traps of white supremacy is that people feel like they need to like, I mean, be perfect perfect at it, right? Or like figure it all out. Like they got to read all the books before they can go do anything. And I'm like, no, y'all, like the, the point here is to create a world in which people of color are not experiencing racism anymore. And you can actually stop a lot of that without having done, you know, read the books or like gone to the workshops. You can actually do that work. And at the same time, and this is why white folks need to pace themselves, because this is like we're talking about, <laughs> I'm like, there's a bookstore close to my house. It's the place that I, if you want a signed copy of my book, they are the only place you can get it. So I go there to sign books. It's Marcus Books. It's the oldest black bookstore in the country. And I remember... Uh, <laughs> I called one day to see because she needed Blanche had called me to ask me to come in and I called her back and she decided when she answered the phone, I was like, what's going on? She's like, I spent my whole day talking to white people who want all the anti-racist books. <laughs> and we were like, that's great. <laughs> but like, again, pace yourselves. Like we're this, this is a generational marathon. This is not a thing that anybody's going to do in a couple of weeks. You don't read the books and then like you're all done. So I'm just like, I'm like white folks, just like do the work, like read all the books for sure. But like know that you are beginning with something that is a lifelong journey. And it's not some shit that you should pause. It's not like you do a little bit of the work and then you're going to stop being anti-racist. Like it is like a thing that you need to be doing all the time because white supremacy does not rest. Like it is always out there inside of you in the world, you know, fucking up my day. So <laughs> don't, so you don't get to rest. Like you, this is a thing you do all the time. It's a uh, very validating to hear you say that. Cause we actually have an episode called how to be an ally when you are overwhelmed and we call it white fatigue. We're like, do not burn yourself out. Like this is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Like yes, on stamina. Yeah. Yes. Yes, keep going. And it doesn't yeah. have to be about the books. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's such an important reminder, especially because, you know, I think there was such a, a wave of interest at the start and everyone, you know, every all the anti-racist books are now sold out. And, yep. you know, and everyone's like, I got these 25 books and, you know, I'm going to watch these 50 shows and I'm going to read these 100 articles. And then you get like two books in. You're like, well, that was a lot. Well, so. it's also like it's an approach to anti-racism as if it's like there's going to be a test, right? Like that you can like do this work and study for it and then be done. And I'm like, again, this is like you're just beginning a process. And like a book is absolutely, I think it's a great place to start for sure. But it is a, it's a practice, right? Like it's more like, you know, a religion or, a, you know, meditation or something like it is a practice. It's a habit that you have to develop and habits are hard. And that's part of why you need like, you know, your accountability buddies. And it is just like, again, like white supremacy doesn't rest. It's not like you go and you do a little bit of something and then you can stop for a little while. Like if you're going to be an anti-racist white person, then you're doing it all the time. And like, you know, don't try so hard all the time, though, either, because you're going to burn yourself out. 
there's a, the perfectionism thing I think that comes up for white folks when they do this work is one of their downfalls. That's awesome. Is there anything else before we wrap up? I realize I want to be mindful of your time and we've just talked like ever, which is awesome. <laughs> anything else before we wrap up that we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about? No, we're good. This is fun. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you. <laughs> If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 